Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&As. It is Thursday morning, so hopefully there was enough time for everybody to get their questions in. So let's just jump in and see what we got. First up, over on the YouTube support page, James Pingel said they have the opportunity to rethink storage for their games and movies. They've used some storage cube shelves with a few cloth drawers, and they love them for storing controllers and cables, but they don't like them as much for games because they're too deep, and they have to double stack games and movies to fit everything, with the bonus that not all the cubes have a backing to them. So they have to be careful how far back they push things, or they risk stuff falling into their uh, soon-to-be-freshly-painted walls. A quick search for media shelves brought up a company called Atlantic, available on Amazon, that has a few cheap offerings that look like they fit the bill, but they were wondering if there's anything else well-known in the scene that they should be considering. They have mostly Blu-ray or DVD-based games and movies to store, and they're expecting to move within a few years, so they're not looking for a perfect top-dollar solution to last a lifetime, though it would be nice if it's not a piece of junk and could survive a little bit. Um, I'm actually in the same spot. So uh, my answer to you is a cop-out, but also a cry for help to anybody listening who's good at shelves and stuff. I am moving my games and VHS and DVD and CDs from where they're at now to that shelf that, um, if you saw the room tour, it was in the corner behind the guitars. And that's a kind of a perfect place for this stuff, except the way the shelving works, it's like uh, closet uh, closet shelving in that the two metal strips go into the studs and then there's the little brackets that snap in and the wooden shelves go on top, which means there's like a two inch gap between the back of that, that things could just fall down behind. So I was wondering what's the best way to store all that stuff. Now, sure, I could take all of that and push it all the way back and hope that the, the media doesn't teeter back enough to fall through. But I thought it would be much cooler if there was better things like um, for cassettes, for example, there are those plastic storage things that usually have the wall mount stuff in them. So you could probably do that or you could probably just use double-sided uh, tape to keep them set to your shelves. So that way you would put that plastic thing on the shelf and put the cassettes into that. But are there any better methods? Are there stuff like that for CDs, DVDs, Blu-rays? Like this has to be a problem that a million people deal with because so many people have shelves that there is no backs to them or like in my situation where they could fall back. So what do people do? Do they have cool storage stuff like that? Um, do they just buy bookshelves that are not as deep specifically for this reason? And if so, does anybody know brands of bookshelves? So any suggestions would be really helpful. Just one quick reminder, YouTube deletes almost all links and it doesn't even go into my held for review bin. So if you post a link, there's an excellent chance I'll never even see it. So please post a description. Like at Ikea, there is a Billy bookshelf that's half depth, that's only a hundred bucks and has 10 shelves or whatever. The description's really gonna be helpful for that. So um, anybody that could offer any suggestions, I would really appreciate it for both myself and James. Uh, but I really do think this is just an issue that a ton of people are dealing with. So, you know, how do you... Uh, how do you store stuff that's not nearly as deep as your shelf? And what if the shelf falls back in? So there's got to be solutions out there. And hopefully somebody listening could give us a hand. Now we're going to switch over to Patreon. And first up over there, Steve Wells wanted to follow up on the conversation from last week about what mods should be done to an early Model 1 Genesis. And I had given a couple of suggestions, but I also came back with, it really depends on your target devices. And it looks like Steve's target device where it's going to be a PVM 
and a scaler going into a flat panel. So uh, it's going to be retrotating 5X or 4K upcoming once that's released. And if that's the case, then that is a very clear answer. Then you want to make sure that you have good quality analog video signals. That should be the priority. And then anything else could be separate on top of that. So to elaborate a little more, though, Steve said they have also have a Master System 2 with the active RGB mod, which adds the Genesis 2 output jack. And they've also got a retro gaming SCART cable for that but they also have a Genesis 1 to Genesis 2 cable on the way to cover both bases as they'd rather leave things as original as is practical while maximizing quality. They might just even start with recapping and go from there. So this is all the information I need to complete your question. Thank you for being patient with me. Starting with a recap is definitely a great idea because the consoles are 30 years old. If it doesn't need it today, it will within the next 10 years, period, end of story. So I'm a fan of, pe of preventive maintenance like that. Some people disagree with me. Some people say you should really just wait until there's some kind of failure, but I don't, I just, I don't want my consoles to have leaky caps or just stop working one day. So I'm on your page for that. However, I would also look into doing the subcarrier bypass mod that I showed on the website. I'll leave that link uh, in the description for anybody who's interested, but I think you, I don't know if anybody's selling those boards. I think you have to make your own, but they're, I mean, you could go to any PCB manufacturer and have a small packet made for a couple of dollars. And then if, as long as you could solder SMD components, it shouldn't be too hard at all. But what that will do is leave everything exactly like you said, leave as things as original as is practical while maximizing quality. That's exactly what this does. It is not the cleanest RGB signal out there, but it is definitely a step up, especially on the early revision Model 1 Genesis consoles that you'll be using. So you get a step up in RGB quality. You get a lot of jail bars removed from that, but you retain composite video and you, retain, you basically turn it into an upgraded Genesis one that's, I would call this all stock. And I think when I did the weekly roundup that talked about the subcarrier bypass, I think I described it as something like, um, like fixing Sega's problems, not so much doing an RGB bypass or an upgrade. And anybody that's opened a Model 1 Genesis knows that there's very often bodge wires everywhere on the inside because they needed to fix their own design before they got shipped out. So I kind of view this more as fixing Sega's mistake than I do anything else. So I would definitely look into that. Worst case scenario, you could always put it back the way it was. You could add that HDMI mod later. You could do it. I think the HDMI mod would work with this one as well. So there's, I don't think there's any downside to doing that other than, you know, it's a mod that you have to deal with doing. But starting with recapping and seeing how you like it's fine. Um, but just keep the subcarrier bypass in the back of your mind. If the jail bars drive you crazy, which is even going to be noticeable on a PVM, then, you know, then do it. And if not, if everything looks fine, or if you're like, you know what, if I wanted crystal clear Genesis, I'll use a mister. I want to use it exactly as it's supposed to be used and leave it as is. But yeah, cool. Thanks for following up. And I'm glad I have a much easier answer for you this time. Next up, Shane Coolen wants to know what they should do with their frame meister. It's been sitting in its box since they got it, never used. With the RetroTank 4K coming out, is it just obsolete? So this is going to be a hard question to answer, especially because of the part where it's, you said it's basically brand new. So I'll give kind of the overview of the FrameMeister. Um, with the RetroTank 4K coming out, I would say there's no reason to buy a FrameMeister brand new uh, for gaming on a flat panel. 
and just nothing wrong with the Frame Meister. There's just better options that have been released. However, if you already owned one, it's still an excellent tool for streaming. Or if you could find one used in cheap, I feel the same way. So let's say you have an RGB monitor set up. You have all your consoles going through it. Everything's absolutely the way you want it, but you want to stream your games or you want to capture footage for stuff. Then you could just take the RGBS output of your monitor, run that right into the input of the Frame Meister, so you don't even need a splitter or anything like that. Download the Firebrand X profiles and have yourself some very awesome looking streams. And it doesn't matter if there's lag or it doesn't matter if there's a slightly better version of something out there, because when you're streaming, compression and all that other stuff, you're just, you're not going to tell the difference. So if you had said, oh, I'd been using my Frame Meister for like eight years, but now it's time to upgrade. I would have said something like put it on eBay as an auction, starting bid $1, post about it on social media to get the word out there. And then hopefully you'll get a decent price for it. But what if you only got like 75, hundred bucks for it? And it's basically brand new. That feels very unfair for everyone, basically. <laughs> so um, I don't, I'm not really sure how to answer this one. You could still try to throw it up on eBay. Um, you could try to do a fundraiser and donate it to charity. So you get a little bit more money, but that way you could, um, you know, fundraiser to buy it and then donate the money to charity, not donate the Frame Meister. But, uh, you know, the, the, you could get creative with it. But my only hesitation at all is that I don't want you to lose a ton of money on essentially a, a brand new thing that doesn't seem fair. So I don't know if anybody has any suggestions, please post in the comments. But, uh, you know, just putting it on eBay for an auction is always a really good idea or see what they're selling for on eBay, not the scalper prices, look at the real sales and then just kind of aim it at the higher range of that, but sell it as new and, and, you know, hopefully you'll be able to get your money for it, you know, sell it as a buy it now or something, but yeah, it's, you know, it's just one of those things where it's kind of hard because it is definitely the Frame Meister. A lot. I mean, there would be no, there would not be the same type of scaling options we had if we didn't have the Frame Meister to start. If nothing else, that got Firebrand X profiles out there, which allowed us to do a lot of the things that we now do on the OSSC, on the Tink 5X, and of course, its profiles are coming on the, the Tink 4K. So I don't want to throw shade at the Frame Meister because it doesn't deserve that. But it's kind of hard because it's also what I would not recommend right now. But it's still a great, great tool for streamers. So maybe um, maybe try and sell it on eBay and, and hopefully get your, get your money back for it. Next up, Bernie doesn't really have a question. He just thought we might be interested in UltimateSid.dk. And there's high-res recordings of SID tunes with documentation on which Commodore 64 was used and which SID was used in each case. Seem, uh, seems with composers signing off on several recordings as well. That's awesome. Uh, I really wish I could keep up more on this stuff. I try to leave the retro PC stuff to Reese, to Vanessa, to Danielle. Um, Maddie's always welcome to post on the site as well, Miss Mad Lemon, but I'm not sure if she ever has. I know I can set her up with an account, uh, but it's just, I don't like talking about things that I don't have a, a decent enough grasp of because I feel like it's disrespectful. And when it comes to things like, hey, there's a new thing for sale for the Commodore 64 that people are probably going to want, that's one thing. Because even if I get every single bit of information wrong, you st as long as I get the pre-order date, the price, and what it's called, and you know the website link right, it's still a win because people who are fans of that might be able to at least learn about it and laugh at me if I get it wildly wrong. But stuff like this, where there's nothing really to sell, there's just 
awesome work out there that deserves good promotion. I feel I feel like for me to just kind of fumble through it would be disrespectful. So I'm going to leave the link that Bernie posted in the description for anybody that wants to check it out. And maybe if one of the writers who's into C64 is into this stuff too, they could do a brief write-up that won't sound like a bumbling idiot trying to figure out what uh, Sid Tunes on a C64 is. Next up, Oliver Clare wanted to share an idea for kind of an interesting homebrew Wii controller. And basically, what about instead of having accelerometers or gyroscopes like a Wiimote to do its motion control, you have gesture recognition software to translate button inputs into corresponding gestures and in-game actions. So you might be able to have something like a micro SD slot in the controller, and that way you could kind of try to program it in with these pre-configured gestures. And I, I think... All of those things are pretty interesting, and I think sometimes that might be something that could be added to game patches. So you used an example of Donkey Kong Country Returns. Maybe one profile would map the uh, the shake feature or the tilt to rotate to a different button and stuff like that. I think those might be good per game for people that just don't want to have to deal with that. But I think for you to actually design a controller that replaces the Wii's motion controls with gesture-based stuff, what that would really take is a person or a group of people who feel really passionately about that and just want to, you want to do this as a hobby and then release it and see what happens. Um, this is respectfully... I don't think this is one of those ideas where you get a group of people together, you fund it, you build it, and then you hope people buy it. I think this is the opposite. I think this would take somebody with in-depth knowledge of how to do stuff like this to make their own Wii controller in order to integrate all of this stuff into it. Um, but I could be wrong. Maybe as I say this idea out loud, people are going to go, oh, no, I'd love that. You know, let's let's work something out. But I think the best way to go about doing that would probably be to, to have a developer who already just really wants to do something like this and put them in touch with other people who could help the other portions, like making the molds, doing a 3D print. But I think it would really have to start with a passion project for somebody to want to do something like this. Um, I always thought the Wii's motion controls were were fine based on the game. So some games, the tilt, the shake, I I thought that kind of added to it. And the silly stuff like the bowling and the tennis, like the, those were pretty neat. But then when it got to things like the sword control and Skyward Sword, when you had that one side game thing where you'd have to swipe back and forth, there was nothing I could ever do to get it to work on screen the way I was using the controller to do it. So I always was very let down by some of the more advanced stuff. So it's it was kind of one of those things where it's um it's a personal preference, but I think Nintendo did find a happy medium. They're not going to make a controller that costs 500 bucks to make that has flawless motion controls that some kid is going to throw through a window and smash by accident. So I think they found a really good balance. Um, and I do wish the, uh, the motion control plus was something that could have been done first, but you know, it, it is what it is. So I am a fan of the Wii. I think uh, it was absolutely groundbreaking for a whole bunch of reasons, but I'm not really sure if there's a, a huge need to do a controller that does gesture-based. I think there might be a better way of going through something like Dolphin and using those in emulation to do that. And that's one of the great things about emulation is having some kind of macro that's programmed into a key command, whether it's on your keyboard or a controller. While that's not easy, it's certainly much easier than trying to design a controller from scratch. But I still wanted to talk this one out because I like ideas. And I also 
I'm very aware of just because I don't think something's a hit product doesn't mean it's not going to be. So I am well aware of maybe I, I say this out loud. There's going to be tons of people that go, holy crap, I've always wanted that. Let's get together and do it. My gut's telling me no, but I still like talking about this stuff because I am a firm believer that, uh, especially like when I was writing music in the band, I was a firm believer that even my bad ideas could potentially lead to good ones. And they very often did. I'd very often fart out a riff. And as soon as I played it, my ears would go, no, that definitely doesn't work the way I thought it would. But somebody else in the room might be like, hey, that doesn't work, but why don't we use that to do this? And so maybe that's what we're going to lead to here. Who knows, Oliver? Maybe you're, you've just accidentally started an entire movement of macro controls for Dolphin or something like that. But I still wanted to talk it out because I like fun ideas. Next up, Muramasa wants to make a video on an F0AX cabinet they own. Part of that will be capturing video from the system. The F0AX uses the Triforce Arcade system, which is based on a GameCube. It has dual VGA outs on the board with various dip switches to change the type of signal output. They haven't yet looked to see what exact signal it's outputting, but assuming it's a standard VGA signal, what are their options for capture? At the moment, they don't own any scalers, and they have some HDMI capture solutions. They wanted to see if I had recommendations for VGA capture, or if it might make more sense to get a scaler and capture through that. So... I have two answers. Um, what you did not say is I'm going to try to be the best professional F-Zero AX streamer on the planet. I want to get archival footage for a Netflix documentary. I want to get the best of the best. What you said was you already have some HDMI capture solutions. How can I get what this is presumably a VGA signal onto that? So my suggestion would be to start with a cheap DAC, uh, ADC, Analog to Digital Converter. It's the same link, though, retrorgb.link forward slash cheap DAC. It's going to have both ADCs and DACs there. And just get yourself a basic VGA to HDMI converter and see what happens. Maybe it's going to crush the blacks. Maybe the IRE level is going to be way off. Maybe it's not going to work at all, but it's probably going to be 10 bucks or maybe up to 20. Everything's kind of gone up in price, but you're still talking 20 bucks. It should be compatible with every HDMI capture solution. And if it's not, as long as you get it from the Amazon link, you could just return it. So that's definitely where I would start because what if you drop 20 bucks on this? It's totally fine. You get your project done and you never use it again pretty well spent 20 bucks and a tool in your toolbox that you're definitely going to use at some other point. Now, if you had said the opposite and you're like, I want the best for this, I want to get the top quality. I, I just want to get the best solution for this. You could get the OSSC and you could try to dial in timings for it. You could get the RetroTINK 5X and you could get the HD15 to SCART, which will take VGA and safely adapt it to the SCART input of the RetroTINK 5X. Or of course, you could wait for the upcoming 4K and do even more craziness with it. But the difference is, a VGA to HDMI converter is just going to digitize it, and that's it. So you're still going to have analog noise. You're not going to be dialing in phase or any of the specific timings. You're just digitizing it. Whereas any of those other solutions, you have the potential to dial in the most perfect capture from it. But do you need that? Are you going to be getting lossless captures that you're using for archival? Or are you just posting really cool footage that you could do a great job scaling and post? So that's why I would start with that and kind of go from there. I have never personally used a Triforce arcade system. I'm pretty sure the dip switches are for things like dual or single out, 480i, 480p, or actually it would be 480i or 640 by 480 I think. But either way, you should be able to get a VGA output of that. So that's where I would start.
Uh, next question from Muramasa. If I don't mind sharing, they're really curious how I juggle all the things I want to do. They're finding they're drowning in various projects, shipping products, making products, and actually designing new products. Just wanted to see how I deal with managing my time and if I think it's working for me. Just trying to get ideas from other people that they assume are overloaded. So I have my very set rules that I, I grounded myself in. The podcast has to come out Wednesday morning, period, end of story. If I'm sick, if I'm not sick, if I'm on vacation, that that's priority. Second priority are these Q&As. No, no disrespect to anybody. I don't want to, people who participate in these to feel second, but I do feel like people who support and participate in these do so to help keep the weekly podcast running. So I don't feel like you're offended by saying that the Q&As come second. So I have missed those a few times. Um, but that's the number one thing is I've picked my priority and that is the weekly podcast. Now that entails making sure I try to do one post a day minimum on retro RGB. If there's zero posts one day and five another, whatever. But at the end of the week, I try to make it so there's seven total things to talk about one for each day. Sometimes there's been 25, sometimes there's been six, but so the weekly podcast means that I have to make sure that I'm writing articles uh, either daily or multiple a day. Writing articles, sometimes it's easy. Hey, there's a new pre-order for this thing that's this time and this price and here's your link. That's like 15 minutes worth of work, but most are not. Most require research and reaching out to people and double checking myself to make sure I don't sound like a total ass when I talk about it. So uh, that is priority one, getting posts up there, getting the, uh, following people all across social medias and keeping in touch with people so that I could continue to get all of this stuff out to people. So the weekly podcast is number one and a little tree that it trickles down and all of the things to it. So a lot of that is talking with devs and, and helping devs aim in the right direction for what the people who buy this stuff are really looking for. Very often a dev has a product that's 99% there, but if they made a one or two little changes, that's exactly what people have been asking for. So now people get what they're asking for and more. So that's a huge part of it. And then everything else, I, I just jam in wherever I can. And this is where my supposed ADHD it becomes my superpower, not my disability, because that's when I just start a bunch of projects and I just work on a little bit, a little bit at a time. And sometimes I just cannot concentrate just sitting down and trying to write one paragraph of a script or a post or something. I just, I can't do it. So great. I've already started two other projects. Let me grab this thing to throw on the oscilloscope. Let me start boxing stuff up. I got to ship to somebody to test. That's always a good one. Uh, even if I'm not feeling well, as long as I'm not totally weak, I could just box stuff up and wrap bubble wrap around it. So it's always making sure that I, no matter what my time, no matter how I'm feeling, if I have time to spend, there's something that I could fit in. And sometimes it's actually watching YouTube videos because I don't have the time to sit and watch all of the videos that I want. But if I, I'm going to be talking about somebody's videos on the weekly podcast, I really want to do that. And sometimes it's, it, sometimes it doesn't feel like work at all. Like that, uh, like if I'm watching it, here's the best example. If I'm watching a displaced gamers video that pops up in my feed from years ago, 
that to me is entertainment because I'm learning stuff. Uh, I get to learn about a video game that I, you know, maybe I was always interested in. But when I watch that specifically to talk about the weekly roundup, I'm paying attention. I don't touch my phone. I don't do anything else. Like I'm paying attention because I really appreciate Chris's work. So now, well, I don't want to be insulting and say it's work to watch a Displaced Gamers video. <laughs> I hope it's not being interpreted that way, but I treat that very seriously because I want to get the word out. So sometimes my job requires me to sit on a couch and watch TV, which is kind of cool sometimes. So yeah, I basically just continue to pile projects on. And I, I unfortunately, as a result, end up letting a lot of people down, especially when things like I get sick for a week. And by the way, thanks to the kind words, I actually am feeling like 99% better. But that really sucks because I have a pile. I am looking to my right at a pile of things. One company has been asking me to, to test their Switch, which I'm very happy to. They're a great company. They've been working with me forever. Uh, another company that I've just started working with has two products there, one of which I need to test behind the scenes, and the other one I will be doing a live stream on to test in front of everybody. And I have a pile of stuff from Laser Bear. Like, I've had this sitting in front of me for a while, and I just got to pick up a phone and call Greg, and I just haven't had time. So, unfortunately, when you pile on projects, you're going to let people down. And luckily, if you have people you've worked with long enough, they'll go, yeah, I get it, Bob. You're doing that thing again. I'll see you in a month. <laughs> we'll revisit it. Um, you know, luckily, I have a lot of people that treat me very nicely, that understand that I'm just trying to do as much as I can. But, yeah, so that's kind of like the whole 10-foot view of it all. Um, but my advice to you is pick your priorities and never miss. Uh, and then everything else kind of goes from there. But everybody's different. I have an ADHD brain, so that's how I have to work. A lot of other people I know need to start a task and complete it, um, whether it's a little bit at a time or some people lock themselves in a room and just hit it for like 12 hours. Do what's right for you, but that's kind of what's right for me. And it's always been working. And really, the only two negative side effects are that I do end up letting people down on a regular basis because I can't get to every single thing. And it does always lead to burnout. I've been a little bit better about it the past year or so. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's not been as much of the big production videos because that's like a second full-time job on top of an already very full-time job. And not rushing to get a couple of those out a month has definitely improved my health quite a bit because I was... I was really averaging like 70 to 90 hour weeks for a couple of years to make sure I could continue to do this for a living. And it's still just right on that line, but that's what was kind of keeping everything going. But every two or three months, about every three or four months, actually, I would hit a wall and just be sick for like almost a full week just because my body would be like, enough's enough, fatty. You can't fire down three donuts and then work a 90 hour week and expect to be fine. So... That's the other, the only other thing you just want to wor worry about is your health. And I'm not sure how old you are, Muramasa, but if you're a freaking old man like me and you're in your 40s, that stuff's going to be, it's going to hit you a lot harder. That whole 70 to 90 hour work week in my late 20s, early 30s was like, what an accomplished week. Let's go out drinking and get shit faced and sleep, you know, half the day on Sunday and then get some more work done and do it all over again for the next six days in a row. And yeah, I'd be dead if I still did that. So <laughs> yeah, just keep uh, keep your health in check. Next up, a question from Chris Dale. Chris is the one that I bought those awesome VGA monitors off of, and he also hooked me up with that very cool Dell flat panel with all those inputs and stuff. Uh, Chris has a problem with a PVM20M4U. They were using it to play a Sega Genesis Model 2, 
And when they turned off the Genesis, they heard a screech noise and the monitor powered off and won't turn back on. A quick Google search shows a lot of people have run across this issue when they turn off a console. There's no definitive answer they could find as to why, but they're wondering what happened. Now, Chris also goes on to explain the full setup, which is very helpful. Thank you very much. I wouldn't have been able to answer the question without it. But essentially, the setup's perfect. Um, the only question I have is the Otaku 3 output auto switch. Um, that's one of the powered ones that buffers the three outputs, right? It's not one of the ones that that is three selections of outputs, but you're only allowed to use one at a time. I'm pretty sure it's uh, the multi-out one. So assuming that it is, it's uh, Insurrection Industries RGB SCART cable. That's properly made. It's an official Sega AC adapter. That's good too. And it's, as long as the switch is right, that's all fine. Your cabling between them is not going to affect uh, killing a console or, or killing a monitor or not. So even if the cabling that you have between them isn't the best, it's only going to affect your quality, not safety. And then it was plugged into, it was all plugged into a high quality trip light surge protector. So my gut is telling me something. Now I have to tell you, this is all speculation. I'm completely full of it. You might want to check with Steve from RetroTech if he has any ideas, but my gut is telling me the monitor was going to do this no matter what. And it might've been that it, you hooked up a VCR to it and you're watching composite video. And when you powered off the VCR, this happened. It could have, it might've been anything, but my gut is telling me the monitor was already about to die and turning off the console, dropping the signal, having the uh, electron gun stop firing like that, that's just what triggered it. So essentially, turning off your console didn't break anything. It was just the, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back type of thing. Anything could have done this. I've definitely seen this quite a lot with old electronics and with TVs, in fact. Um, there was one TV that my dad was just busted my balls. I mean, he, he passed like 10 years ago. So this was a long time ago, but uh, I forgot which T I think it was a Panasonic plasma died after I'd hooked up my PC to it and rebooted it. And it turned out to be the power board. So there's zero chance that hooking my PC up to it killed it. And he knew that too. My dad wasn't a moron, but it was still very funny to bust my balls about it forever after that. So it was just a coincidence. It just happened to be that because when it switches resolu resolutions, the panel you know shuts off and back on real quick, that's what did it. But that would have happened if we were using a cable box or a DVD player or a video game console. And I think that's essentially what happened here. So I'm kind of over explaining just to, just to try to make Make sure that while this is all speculation, you didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with your setup. I've seen your setup. It's pretty awesome. So I don't think you did anything wrong. I just think you had a monitor that was eventually going to need some work anyway, and now is the time. So I would reach out to Steve from RetroTech. Um, if you have the ability to uh, to disassemble any of this yourself, then you could also reach out to Jose, who's local. So that might be a little easier. It's no, you know. The only favoritism between the two is, you know, one's closer to you. I'm not trying to talk talk shit about either of them, but uh, yeah, that might be something. And you also just have to understand that working on monitors takes forever, and it very often requires you to take the monitor apart, troubleshoot, put it all back together, put it aside, wait for parts to come in. So it's it's something that 
you know, it, it's very unlikely that you're going to like bring this to Arcade Brooklyn, pay the shop a hundred bucks and have it fixed in an hour. It's more likely that you're going to have to drop it off with somebody or take it apart and, uh, and try to troubleshoot yourself and then work with somebody like Steve who probably has a bunch of parts laying around in order to fix it. The one thing I will say is, uh, you know, while I always recommend people exercise extreme caution when working on CRTs. Generally speaking, PVMs are fairly safe to work on. They're not like some of these consumer TVs that will hold a charge for 20 years. And, you know, if they're larger ones, you're, you could be in for it. So, but still treat it like it's, treat it like it's a death trap. And then after it's discharged, then you're totally cool. But, uh, and that, that's something I'm sticking to. A lot of people still get annoyed when I say that, but I would so much rather have you be overly cautious and not get hurt. Even if you didn't need to be overly cautious, than just frivolously reach your hand and grab the anode cup and then realize after you're in the hospital that, Hey, I had a heart murmur and I never realized it. And I almost died or, or did. So yeah, just be very careful. But the 20-inch the PVMs are definitely easier to work on than the 14 inches. I certainly learned that when I was taking that apart. So it is possible that you have something that you could take apart, take really good pictures of, and there could be some visual stuff where somebody like Steve could look at it and go, yeah, this is what you need to repair it. But you know, while I'm speculating, strong gut feeling that you did nothing wrong and this was going to happen at some point very soon anyway, and that's just what did it. But now I would just... I would just kind of look at the bright side of things. If you loved that monitor and you take the time to restore it, you're probably never going to have another problem with it for the rest of your life. It's going to be a lot of work though. <laughs> well, that's it for this week. If you're new to these Q and A's, feel free to ask any question you'd like, wherever it is that you support, just please ask it in the latest Q and A post. Cause the way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an older post. And besides, like you saw today, I like just scrolling through these and treating it as if we were having a conversation, hanging out somewhere. I really like just the laid back flow of these. So any question you want fire away. And of course, and especially thank you to everybody who supports, whether you participate in these or not, you are the ones who are really keeping all of this going still. So thank you all so much and I'll see you next week.